Well, we're going to begin our reading this week in Ephesians chapter 4 and beginning in verse 17. It says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ's sake forgave you. My favorite sport in high school was wrestling. I remember at the beginning of the season, our wrestling coach sitting down with the wrestling team and kind of giving us a little talk before we got into our first practice. He explained to us what it meant to be a wrestler on his wrestling team. And he talked about things that we would and would not participate in and attitudes that we would and would not have on the wrestling mat and in our practices and out in life as well. Probably the biggest purpose in that code of ethics was to hold us together as a team. There were different things that he just cemented us together as a team. And he says, if we're going to be a team, then we've got to have some values that are the same. And these are the things that we're going to stand for if you're going to be part of this wrestling team. But the reason that I bring that up is because that's what we're continuing to deal with within this passage. If you remember back to the beginning of chapter 4, he began to talk about the unity that we should experience as a church because of our relationship with one another and our relationship with Jesus Christ. If we're all in Christ, then we are all part of His body, and that's one body, and so we should be unified as a church. We should experience a oneness together. But we also recognized as we began to look at what that oneness meant, that that oneness was going to mean that there was going to be a oneness of doctrinal understanding or a oneness to assent to the truths of the Bible in what it teaches, a oneness in what we believe. But we also mentioned that there would be a oneness to our ethics, to our morality, because we recognize that the Bible teaches a level of morality. And for us to be one with another, we need to all be engaged in that same understanding of what is moral in our society as a church. Well, that's really what we've seen unfold as we go the rest of the way through chapter 4. Because the passage that we looked at last week then looked at the gifts. Even though there's diversity among the gifts, 
the purpose in those gifts is unity in the body because it gives us a unity of truth and a unity of faith as it brings us together in dealing with the content of our faith. And now he's going to go into the area of character, into the area of what is our morality, what is our ethics, what are our values. And this is done within that original context. And what was that context? That we would now walk, remember that term walk, in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We've been called to faith in Christ. So now we need to walk worthy of that position of being in Christ. Well, as we start to go through these values that he lays out at this part, he connects back to our walk with Christ. In verse 20, it says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. He says, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. And so he starts out describing the behaviors of the world that's surrounding you, the culture that's around you, and he says, but that's not how you learned Christ. That ties it all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 4 where he tells us, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Live up to that. But he also connects back to this idea of unity. He's continuing to talk about the unity that we should have as a church. But now how it should impact not only the things that we believe, but the way in which we live. Notice in verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So he connects our behavior back to our unity that we have with one another as well. So we're looking at this idea of our behavior, our morality, our values, but it's still within the context of being connected to Christ, and it's still in the context of our unity one with another. In order to really be one as the body of Christ, we have to believe the same things. Our faith has to consist of the same doctrine. Also, in order for us to be one, then we have to have the same value system in order for us to really be in agreement, to really have this unity. And that's what we're looking at this time. Christ honoring values. Now, as we look at that, the Apostle Paul kind of walks us toward these Christ-honoring values in three different steps. The first step that we see that he leads us down is a prohibition. That's where the, the whole passage starts. Right there in verse 17, he says, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles. He gives them this prohibition here. He's, he's prohibiting them from living in a certain way. And it's a strong command. He says, this is the way that we must not walk. Well, the opposite of that, he's going to deal with a little bit farther down into the passage. So to make it into a positive, we're going to walk in this holiness. But it starts out with a prohibition. He says, you are prohibited from living the lifestyle that you see all around you and, in fact, that you participated in even your even yourself. It's a strong command because he says, now this I say... And then he adds this little phrase, and testify in the Lord. And so he's calling us to account. He's saying, look, I'm holding you before God with this truth that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, as we look at that, that necessitates a couple of things. The first thing that it necessitates is it necessitates change. It says that you must no longer walk in this way. Well, in the city of Ephesus, it was steeped in paganism. In fact, some historians have gone so far as to say that Ephesus was uh, probably the worst or the most lascivious community or city within Asia Minor. 
In fact, in 5 BC, now that's 500 years earlier than the time we're looking at now, Heraclitus, uh, he was a 5th century philosopher. He said of the city of Ephesus that it was dark and vile. And he said that the, the moral nature of the city of Ephesus was worse than animals. He said the inhabitants of Ephesus really were only worthy to be drowned. And so Ephesus had a, had a very corrupt reputation as a, as a city. And again, part of that was 500 years earlier, but at the time the Apostle Paul was there, you still have the worship of the goddess Diana, and you have these pagan rituals going on, and a lot of the pagan rituals included uh, adultery and homosexuality and all kinds of per- perversity as part of their worship. So it was, it was a horrible place. Now he's using the word Gentile to describe that. And he tells them, you no longer live like that. He says, that life that you see all around you, in your society, in your culture, that is not how you learn Christ. And so what he calls them to is a change. And you know what? That just makes total sense. The Bible calls us to repentance. It's what coming to Christ is. Can you go from living a life that is alienated from God to a life that is with God and and have nothing change? Absolutely not. Can you go from a life that is separate from God and void of the Spirit of God working in your heart and then all of a sudden have the Holy Spirit indwelling you and not see a change in your life? Don't you think He's going to rearrange the furniture a little bit in your life? Can you step out of the darkness and and step into the light and not seek a little more clearly to make some changes in your life? That's the point that He's making is that walking with Christ, if you're going to live in Christ... You're going to see change. But not only does it necessitate change, it also necessitates separation. He's calling them to separate, to live in a counter-cultural way. For the Ephesians, this was the predominance of their society, this Gentile lifestyle, this, this pagan lifestyle. And it's one that they had grown up in and were used to and were familiar with. And now he's saying it's going to stop right here for you. You're going to live in a different way. You are now prohibited from living in that way. Think of all the changes that would take place. You have people that would have been participating in the temple sacrifices and the horrid lasciviousness that went with that. You would have people that were that would have relationships that were wrong and that they would need to break off. People that would be living with each other outside of marriage and they would need to break that and move out or get married and do things in a Christ-honoring way. These are people that would have friends but now the friends wouldn't really understand these new changes in their life. What they would be weird to them, and that's really kind of the point. Are you are you willing to be weird for Jesus? Are you willing to be have your friends and sometimes even family members not understand this new direction that you're going? Are you willing to be in those awkward times when somebody at at work or at school tells a joke that is no longer funny to you that everybody else is laughing at? Willing to Find something else to do when everybody else is headed to the bar after work. You see, there's a, there's a separation that takes place. In fact, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul quotes an old passage in the, in, the, in the Old Testament. He says, come out from among them and be separate. God says, and I will accept you. You see, when we draw close to God, we become one more and more with Jesus Christ. We strive to live up for Him. It, we become more and more separate from the sinful world that's around us. The opposite's also true. The more you allow yourself to be a part of the sinful world that around you, the more separated you are from God. The more distant you will be from Him. 
And so this necessitates a separation. Even as he tells them in the passage, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That was their whole culture around them. We, for a long time, have had the privilege of having a lot of our society line up to some extent with our Christian values because our nation was started by Christians coming here. But you know what? Less and less all the time. More and more our culture is one that we should be less and less involved in in those ways. Now it doesn't call us to come all the way out because we need to still be salt and light in the world. We need to be engaged. But you know what? The behaviors and the things like that that are seen, look what's happening down through the generations. When I was a kid, it was a shame for a couple. You were looked down on if a couple lived together before getting married. It's just kind of the accepted norm anymore. Well, all that just to say, look, it gets worse. And you know what? The worse it gets, the darker this world gets, the brighter your light should be shining. That kind of thing is not how you learn Christ. We need to be separate from those sinful behaviors. Well, not only does he lead us through this prohibition, that's the first step. He just tells us, don't do this. Don't walk the way that they do. But then nextly, he identifies the problem. And what exactly is the problem? There's two different areas that he's going to mention in this. He says it's a problem of the mind, the way that they think. And then he also points out that it's a problem of the heart. Because a little bit farther down, it says, they are darkened in their understanding, still referring to the mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. The heart is really kind of the core of your being. But you know what? Those are exactly the areas that we're supposed to honor God with. We're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds tells us in Romans 12. We're supposed to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. But he says, you know what? The Gentile, the unbelieving world out there, they got a problem in both of these areas. they got a problem in their mind with the futility of their thinking. they got a problem in their heart as well. Now, this is an amazing statement that he was making against this Ephesus people because remember, this is part of the Roman culture and part of the Greek culture. Greek was kind of the universal culture at the time. We usually refer to it as Hellenistic. And so there's a lot of Greek elements to the culture. They were speaking the Greek language. There was a lot of Greek culture. And Rome recognized the advantage of a lot of Greek culture. Greeks were big on the exercises of the mind. They were big on education. So much so that the Roman Empire made good use of Greek slaves. Greek slaves became their tutors. They educated the the Roman children. They used them to manage their households and manage their businesses. And so this Greek culture that was big on education and big on philosophy, the Apostle Paul with one word just destroys the whole thing and calls it futile. It's just futile. It's, It's empty. It's just a lot of effort spent spinning your wheels, not aiming for a good goal. Their knowledge, their education allows them to behave like this. What kind of a knowledge is that? You see, there's a lot of difference between wisdom and education. There's a lot of wise people that were very undereducated. And there's a lot of educated people that lack a lot of wisdom. The two don't necessarily, though you would hope, they would go hand in hand. And that's what the Apostle Paul points out here. He talks about the futility of their minds. They are darkened. In their understanding, the, the light bulb hasn't turned on. I remember the day my light bulb turned on mentally. The day where all of a sudden I realized what I was missing. I All of a sudden I knew what it meant to put your faith in Jesus Christ. You see, before that time, I would have told you I was a Christian, but I didn't really know what a Christian was. I didn't understand. My understanding was darkened. 
I thought I was a pretty good guy all on my own. Didn't know why I needed Jesus, even though I was going to church and trying to learn. But all of a sudden, the light bulb turned on and I could see my own darkness. And I realized why I needed the forgiveness of Christ. And I put my faith on Him right there. And you know, all of a sudden, I understood things so much clearer. The different messages that I'd heard over about the last year and a half, I'd been going to church for about a year and a half regularly. All the things that I'd heard over that year and a half, all of a sudden, fit together like a puzzle. Before they were a bunch of individual pieces laying on the table. Now all of a sudden, whoop, it's like the puzzle was done. I bet I learned more over the next month than I did in a whole year and a half before that. Going to all those, listening to all those sermons and doing a little Bible reading on my own and stuff like that. Because now all of a sudden the light turned on and I could understand, well, who turned the light switch on? The Holy Spirit. The Bible says that's His job. He's, he illumines us. He turns that light on. Well, that's what He's saying here. These people in their mind, they were darkened in their understanding. These people that worldly-wise were striving to be people of understanding, people of knowledge, people of education, are described as the Apostle Paul by darkened in their understanding. You know, it's not so with us. First John chapter 1, verses 5-7, through seven, the Apostle says, This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. You see, God intends for us to walk in the light. We need to have that light. That light is on for our understanding through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The unsaved world around us is darkened in their understanding, even while professing themselves to become that they're wise. Even though they'll come up with all kinds of sophisticated reasons of why they're not believers and sophisticated arguments against God, so they think they actually fall short. But in Romans chapter 1, it describes this very well. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and following, it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. And then it just goes on and describes the levels of immorality that they would sink to because they refused to acknowledge God as God. They turned and worshipped something else, part of the creation. He says their thinking became futile became hollow, empty. Now, they didn't recognize it because professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, it says. So their, their minds were darkened. And notice what contributed to the darkening of the mind was the relationship between the mind and the heart. Because when they knew God was God, they refused to acknowledge God as God. Things haven't changed. It's the same thing we get going on today. Why do people reject God? It's because... They have to step off the throne in order for God to get on it in their life. You see, most of the people out there that object to God really aren't objecting to God because it's just unbelievable or that the evidence doesn't point that way. You know, really what it comes down to this issue, they refuse to acknowledge God as God. They don't want to have Him as God over their life. The things that they like to do, the passions and the desires and the things that they participate in, they like to participate in those things. They want to participate in those things. You know, I know I've told you before about a a guy that worked 
for me as a laborer years ago back in Washington when I was building houses. And I had a conversation with him one day, and he just put it, most people won't put it to you so plain and simply. He did. He just basically told me this. He said, look, Rev, I like to drink, and I like to drink until I'm drunk and passed out. And I know if I put my faith in Jesus, I can't do that anymore. And I said, you're willing to spend an eternity in hell so you can do that? It sounds like a nightmare to me. He said, yes, I am. He said, I figure all my friends are going to be there too. And I said, you know what? If you're picturing this thing as like another big drunken party with your friends, you got the wrong picture of what hell's like. You aren't going to be celebrating and tipping them and throwing them back there. But he was honest enough to say that, look, the sinful things that are in my life, I like them. And that's why I don't, I'm not believing in God. He said, I'm not saying he's, it's not true, but I like this. Just an open choice. Well, the next thing that he brings in is that idea that that heart. They were futile in their thinking. But then he says they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And why is that ignorance in them? Because of their hardness of heart. It says they've become callous. What is callous? I have calluses on my hands. And I'm actually thankful for them on my hands. Because I use tools a lot, I swing hammers a lot, things like that. And so those areas of my hands that get rubbed, and if I didn't have calluses, they'd be blisters. You run a shovel for a long time, probably going to have blisters, and then you're going to have calluses. If the calluses are formed so you don't get blisters anymore, well, what's a callus? A callus is just a chunk of dead skin in there. It's still there. Well, I've had time where they, where they kind of come and start to crumb, peel a little bit, and you can rip that whole callus off, doesn't hurt you at all. Until you get down to that sensitive skin. That callus, you can pinch it as hard as you want, whatever. It's just, it's a chunk of you that's deadened to your senses. It doesn't feel anymore. And that's what he says about them. They've become callous. Their heart is hardened. It's deadened to their senses. They no longer feel the pain. I remember it was on a radio interview that I heard with Tony Dungy. And he talked about the struggles he had as a parent over one of his children. One of his children has a, a neurological disorder. He can't feel pain. And he says, everybody's reaction is always the same. Oh, that's kind of cool. You, you never see your kid get hurt. He says, it's not cool at all. He says, my kid doesn't think anything about going up to a hot oven, re- open the oven door, reach in, grab the cookies right out of that hot oven and put them in his mouth. He says, it's blistering his tongue. It's doing his mouth damage. But he doesn't know it because he can't feel it. He says, I can take him to the park. you got to watch him like a hawk because other kids are going up and going down the slide. My kid will get to the top and think it looks just as fun to jump off the top. He can jump off the top, break his leg, doesn't even feel the pain in his leg, go further damaging himself the whole time. It's a nightmare having that disease because you're constantly destroying yourself and you don't even know it. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying these people, these these unbelievers out there, the first time... Because God does in His common grace give us a conscience. The first time it might bother their conscience. They didn't really feel very good about what they did. But you know what? The second time it hurts a little bit less. The third time it hurts even less than that. You know what they're doing? They're building a callus. It's not that it's not wrong anymore. They're just becoming deadened to the fact that they're destroying themselves in their sin. And that's what he says here. He says in their heart they're hardened, they're callous. And it says they've become callous and given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity. He's not describing every individual within the society. But he's saying, as you look at the pagan lifestyle, what do you see? You see all of these ugly things. All for the purpose of saying, look, that is not that is not how we learn Christ. That is not what it means to be in Christ. And so he leads us through that problem. So he starts out with the prohibition. He says, look, you are not to do this. Why? Because it's not doesn't fulfill Christ, does not bring unity in the body. 
this prohibition necessitates some change. You used to do some of those things. You need to stop it if you haven't already. And so he tells them it's going to bring change in your life. It's also going to bring separation. You're not going to fit in quite as good within the world. But you are going to fit in better with God and you're going to fit in better in the church. There's going to be a unity there. But you're going to be less and less fit in in the world. Shouldn't be too surprising. That's exactly what Jesus warned his disciples of. He said they hated me. They're going to hate you. They're going to kill me. They're going to try to kill you. And they did. They killed all them too. You know, they mock Christ. They're going to mock you. It's okay. We need to be separated. He describes the problem. The problem is a problem of both mind and heart as they callous themselves to it. And then lastly, he leads us through the process. The process of this change. We're actually going to deal with this mostly next week as we go through this uh, list of examples that he gives us to follow. But he, he just unveils the process for him, And he says, look, it's a matter of putting off and putting on. And he just kind of makes this picture, this analogy that's like changing clothes. He's saying, look, you got old dirty clothes from your life before you were a Christian. They need to go. Take them off. Get rid of them. And you have this completely new righteous wardrobe in Christ in a very practical way daily. You need to be putting that on. And so he's going to lead them through a lot of different examples. He starts off with just kind of a a summary about it here. He says, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. You know, that, that's a bummer, that line there. And the reason it's a bummer is the Apostle Paul says, look, this is not how you were taught Christ. And he says, uh, well, assuming that you did get the instruction that you should have got with Christ, assuming that you were taught about what it means to truly live for Christ, you know what's sad about that? Is that in our day and age, and in our country, you can no longer just assume it. You know, I was talking to a young man a few months back, and he was telling me, he went to, uh, I don't know if it was a seminar or something done at their church, I don't remember what all the context was, but he thought he was going into a service that was going to help give him tools to fight temptations, sexual temptations and things like that, and he was very surprised that the conversation went a different direction, and he said, I was just dumbfounded that... The leader, a teacher within our conference, stood up there and told us, a bunch of young people, that sex outside the confines of marriage was not necessarily sinful in every circumstance. You cannot find that anywhere in the Bible. But he says, I was just, he says, I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. He says, I'm thinking I'm going to this guy to gain some strength for dealing with temptations, stuff like that, some knowledge, and you're telling me that it's just okay? He couldn't believe what he was hearing from that. And you know what? That's a sad thing. Is Even if you look around our country, today you're going to find churches that are out there. And I use the word churches loosely in that sense. But they're going, to, they're going to support and even promote very ungodly, very sinful sexual behaviors that are within our society. Because our society is more and more coming to the place where the only sin that's not going to be tolerated is intolerance itself and If you can find the end of that snowball, I don't know how, but logically, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. But but the point is, you know what, even churches you have, and that's what the Apostle Paul was, he's telling them, look, you're not supposed to live this way, that's not how you were taught Christ, you were taught. And he's like, oh, well, assuming that you were taught, you know, unfortunately in our society, that is not an assumption that you can make anymore. But as we look at it, he then unveils the process and he tells them that it's simply, and we'll end with this. He says, what, what were they taught? What is this truth in verse 21? What were taught in him, being in Christ, as the truth that is in Jesus? 22 describes that truth to put off 
your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And we'll get deeper into that next week, but the point that he's making is, look, this is how we live out Christ. That old life, that old manner of living, that old lifestyle, which is what? Deceitful, because it promises a happiness that it does not provide. is deceitful. It's destructive in our lives. It's corrupt. It's got to go. Get rid of those things, those elements of that old life. That old man. You're not that old man anymore. You put your faith in Christ, now you're a new man. And he says, now put on that new man. And next week we'll look with more detail of what exactly that involves uh, between putting off the old and putting on the new.